Welcome to the Sports Lodge, where sports, entertainment, and pop culture merge within the mind of your host, Roger Lodge. Hey, welcome into the Sports Lodge. I am your charming, talented, witty, and humble host, Roger Lodge. And coming up on today's episode of the Sports Lodge podcast, I will discuss the constantly changing world of sports broadcasting, journalism, and reporting with one of the best in the business, a man that has covered as many events and big games and stories than pretty much anybody in the business. He's done it for SI.com, ESPN, and the man is now living his dream as a columnist for the Los Angeles Times. He's a dear friend of the Sports Lodge. He is Arash Markazi. Arash, how are you? I'm good, Roger. Thanks for having me. Hey, man, thanks for being here. Truly appreciate it. Let me start with this. A young Arash Markazi growing up in the San Fernando Valley here in Los Angeles, who was it that turned you on to sports, and how old were you when that took place? Well, I think it was my dad. I mean, my dad would always have sports on. So, you know, just growing up in Los Angeles, I mean, I didn't really watch a whole lot of cartoons, although I I did watch some, but it was... (laughs) You know, watching the Lakers, watching the Dodgers, watching USC, UCLA. I mean, we always had sports on in the house. And then, you know, reading Jim Murray in the Los Angeles Times. And, you know, as we got a little bit older, we were listening to Joe McDonald and Doug Krikorian on the radio. I mean, it just such a fun time in Los Angeles sports. So, um, yeah, just growing up here and just loving to see the Lakers at the Forum or Dodgers at Dodger Stadium or USC at the Coliseum, UCLA at the Rose Bowl. It was a fantastic time. What was your go-to cartoon growing up? Good question. You know, I, I, I like Dalvin and the Chipmunks. I like the <laughs> you know, waking up uh, Saturday morning with my bowl of cornflakes. And so I would watch some cartoons, and you know, but... Uh, I was just such a big sports fan. You know, I, I, I think I watched cartoons when I was really, really, really young. But as soon as I got six, seven, or eight, you know, that was, uh, you know, like Kirk Gibson and um, Moral Hershiser and Magic Johnson and James Worthy. And just, I thought Los Angeles teams, like, that was our birthright to win a championship because 1988, the Dodgers win and the Lakers win. And I'm like, well, that's the way that it always is. You live in Los Angeles and your teams win. Championship City, baby. Hey, when my parents would go out for date night, I would do a write-up on the night in sports, and I would leave it on my stepfather's pillow. So, you know, because I he had come along, and I didn't, I didn't like him at first, and we, we kind of started to bond through sports. So I would do this whole thing and set that on his pillow, and then we would talk about it in the morning. I guess my question is, when did you first get the writing bug? You know, I was really shy growing up, and I um, really loved to write. And so I remember, uh, this is grade school, this is seventh grade, I think, putting out a newsletter, and, you know, you're supposed to kind of work with the team. And I basically wrote, like, all the sports stories. So I think I still have it somewhere, or my mom had it somewhere, where, you know, it's you, you know, you print it out a newsletter, and it's, like, five sports stories. And I wrote, like, the entire sports section and the teacher's like well listen you, you have to have someone else do this story and someone else do the the, the other story and i and i kind of wanted to write the whole thing and and i i think that the the turning point was it wasn't just something that i enjoyed doing like my teacher said you know what like this is not that bad and i know you're, you're just a kid but you, you actually kind of know what you're talking about here 
So going into high school, like that's when I wanted to, you know, be the, you know, work for sports at the um, high school newspaper. I wanted to string for the Los Angeles Times. I strung, I strung prep games, and that's what, you know, um, high school is when I really began to kick up into this second notch where this is not something that I just want to do for fun. Like this could actually be a career. So, like I mentioned, my stepdad and I, we formed this amazing bond through sports. We were always talking about sports. He worked in sporting goods. He, I would jump in his station wagon, and we would drive to USC and uh, visit John McKay to see if he needed some more tape or socks or uniforms or wherever it was. We would do the same thing with UCLA. Imagine this. John Wooden used to call our house to wow. do his uniform order for the season. And I would sneak in the back bedroom and I would unscrew the part of the old rotary phone that you talked to. <laughs> and I would listen to my dad talk to the greatest college basketball coach that ever lived. So we had a real bond with it. Did you and your dad talk a lot of, a lot of sports as well? And how did that affect your father-son relationship? Yeah, I mean, that, the greatest moments of our relationship probably we have revolved around sports where it's like, you know, our team wins, whether it's, you know, the Lakers or Dodgers or whatever, and, like, we hug or we, we, we talk about sports. I mean, I, I, I would say a, a good percentage of our conversations, maybe a unhealthy percentage, some would say, is about <laughs> sports. And so I think he's awfully proud of what I've been able to do in my career because um, he grew up as a Cowboys fan and um, – uh, this was a couple of years ago, maybe like it might have even been the last year. Actually, I was able to take into the Cowboys Washington Redskins game, and it's the only time I've ever called in a favor. But I said, "Hey, listen, this is the only time he's he's probably going to be be able to go to the new stadium. Is it like anything you could do, just to, you know, like I'll pay for the ticket, but you know." And so he was able to come on the field with me pregame, and uh, it was a really cool moment where you know he's just a big sports fan and he loves to watch the games on tv but when, when, when i can share those moments with them those are the moments i really i really cherish a lot me and my dad used to talk about sports so much it would drive my mom crazy and she <laughs> yeah. would she would literally yell at us don't you ever talk about anything else other than sports but here's my thing on that we talked so much about sports we were so used to chatting and then when it came time, as I got older, it was easier to talk about other life stuff because we had chatted so much about sports. Did you find that the same with you and your dad? Yeah, I mean, it was just like that common connection of like, that's how we break the ice. I mean, he'll call me about a game or he'll call me about sports news or trade or hire. And then obviously the conversation will transition into something else but i mean that's really the beauty of sports that it kind of breaks down walls that might be there and not just between a father and a son but obviously with different people you walk into a sports bar you don't know someone but they're wearing the jersey of the team that you like and so there's a inherent connection that you have with your with your fans you know like there's this common bond that you have with them that um is it's really unique, and, and if you're not a sports fan, it's hard to, to, to describe. You know, why do you care so passionately about these people? You know, when, when you don't know them, but there's something about being a sports fan that I mean, I, I, me and my dad talk about this all the time. Like, we don't understand people who don't like sports. We're <laughs> missing something so great in your life. Like, why aren't you a sports fan? Arash Markazi, give me the first paying job you ever had in sports man you did it you did it well and a couple of weeks later that paycheck came in the mail 
Well, you know, the coolest moment in my life was like my, my first job was when I was in high school and I was stringing prep sports. You know, I would go to a high school game and a lot of these were really lower division. This wasn't like Loyola or Hotter Day. It was like, you know, you know, Heraclete and someone else. It was just very small. But shoot, and I forgot what it paid. It was like maybe like twenty dollars or something along those lines. But the fact that my name was in the Times, and again, this was a very short. I was basically keeping statistics, and my story was less. You know, maybe one paragraph was. This is what the quarterback threw for. This is how much the receiver caught. Whatever. I mean, it was it was so small, but like that was such a great first job of mine, and it really kind of. Um, really reaffirmed my passion for what I wanted to do in my life. I mean, I, I said, I know it's Friday night. I know my friends are like out there having a good time, and I'm all the way and wherever covering high school football, but I love it. And so that was my first um, job and really the moment that I knew that this is what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. Hey, Arash, when I, when, you know, back when I'm in high school, and one of the reasons I talked about sports from such an early age, in fact, was because I was such a dork with the ladies. I mean, I had no <laughs> I had no game with the ladies. It was just so awkward for me. And I was always so much more comfortable meeting up with my guy friends in the quad around the lunch tables during snack or lunch or even after school. And that was just always easier for me. Was talking sports with your buddies in your early teenage years, was that a big deal to you? Yeah, I remember in high school at Sherman Oaks, Notre Dame, we would hang out in the quad and we would talk about the you know the games the previous night. And this was back in the good old days where all the games were on television, where the Lakers road games were on KKL 9 and the Dodgers games you could kind of see without it being a struggle um, as it is now. So um, we would always talk about sports. And I think that's why I think a lot of them, I'm, I'm about to come up on my 20-year high school reunion, and so many of them are really like – you know, they're not surprised with what I'm doing, but they're also so happy knowing that I grew up every day. They saw me with my newspaper in the sports section and talking about the games last night. And the fact that I get to do that now for my job is such a dream come true. And, and, and they know that more than pretty much anyone else because they saw me uh, just in the quad with my sports section and my highlighter <laughs> and talking about the gig games. So when you left Notre Dame High School in Sherman Oaks, you first headed to the Arizona State University, mm-hmm. and then you went to USC. Why did you switch? You know, so first of all, with PSU, um, it was two parts. They had the Walter Cronkite School of Journalism, and I, that, that really intrigued me, the name and the fact that that was such a great journalism school. I also needed to kind of leave home, and I, I didn't want to just stay home. I, I felt it would have been good for me to leave. And also, uh, Playboy had named uh, Arizona State the number one party school. So I thought that might be kind of a fun thing, right? Um, and I always tell my friends I'll never regret it because it was the best freshman year of all time. But I also realized at that point in time there was no way I was going to be able to survive four years there. I had such a good time, and I'm so glad that I went there for my first year. But almost none of my uni- none of my Units transferred, <laughs> and I and I kind of had to start from scratch. But I'm glad I went to USC. I'm glad I got to come back home. Um, but again, best freshman year of my life for okay. sure. Okay, so you, when you look back at your days at SC's Annenberg School for Communication, when you were there driving the administrators like Jabari Brown and Deborah Ono crazy, <laughs> how, 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 how 
How much did you really learn there that you use on a daily basis today? Well, you know what? A lot of it is the real-life experience you get. I was so lucky that literally my first day on campus was Pete Carroll's first day on campus. Oh, wow. You kind of look at, you kind of look at the ability to, to cover one of the top football programs um, and, you know, Carson Palmer winning the Heisman and Matt Leinart winning the Heisman and Reggie Bush, regardless of what they say now, winning the Heisman and winning two national championships. And so to be able to cover that and to make the connections that I made during that time, that enabled me to do what I'm doing now. So, you know, listen, there's a lot of things I, I, I learned during my time there. I even I tell my students now at UIC, like that real-life experience that you get. And so that, I was so happy when Sam Darnold led that team to the Rose Bowl because I was like, man, that, there's nothing like covering that game. And I, and I really want that for the kids that I, that I teach that, that, that are there. So, um, you know, again, I, I was so fortunate. Mark Pryor led the baseball team to the College World Series. Brian Scalabrini, Sam Clancy, Jeff Stepani led that team to the uh, Elite Eight. And, uh, again, I got to cover some great football. So I, I was there at a very great, a very good time. So if memory serves me correct, you just mentioned your first day on campus, you're doing the Pete Carroll intro press conference. So that's like yeah. December of the year 2000. What do you remember most about your very first assignment covering Pete Carroll's introductory press conference? Well, it was awesome. I, I, I had just transferred, and so, but I, I let them know that, listen, I'm not a freshman, you know, I'm a sophomore, I'm, I'm, I'd like some more responsibility and things like that. So I got to, you know, be one of the football writers and got to cover the hoops team. But uh, Pete Carroll and I really um, hit it off because I was pretty high on that hire just because I, I, I liked what he was able to do with the New England Patriots. I thought he got a raw deal there. So, while a lot of columnists in town were knocking the hire, calling it like it'd be basically a copycat of the of the Paul Hackett hire, um, I wrote in the school paper. Now I know it's a school paper, but still, like you know, how he's going to be a fantastic hire. And and he came up to me after practice one day and he said, "Listen, we're going to clip that column and we're going to send that to recruits." And like, it's kind of funny to look back on that now because within a year, like everyone would be talking about how great Pete Carroll was. But at that time period, he was looking for any kind of positive, you know, press that he was so happy that I wrote a positive piece that he was the new head coach of the team. Arash, I always talk about here in the Sports Lodge the the fact that Pete Carroll changed my life. And I mean, I could not be more sincere when I say that because I was doing a weekly show with him back at another radio station in Southern California at the time, and Pete would come in every single week. He knew everybody's name. His enthusiasm was infectious, and it was just amazing, and I chose to you know, start rolling with that approach because it just felt so good to be around Pete Carroll. Is that what you saw in his, first, uh, in his introductory press conference? What turned you on about Pete Carroll, and why did you think this guy's going to do some great things at I see. You know, I knew he was going to be a great recruiter. Like, when I talked to him about recruiting, he said he was so passionate about that. You know, and so many coaches are really passionate about coaching, or so many coaches are passionate about, you know, the scheme or the hires. But he said, I want to get into the living room and recruit these players. And I kept thinking during the course of my conversation with him, well, geez, like, if this guy is sitting in front of me and I'm kind of young, like, I was just a college, I was just in high school two years ago. 
I can't say no to this guy. I, I don't think my parents could say, say no to this guy. And so I knew he would be a great recruiter. And then I, I did really have a gut feeling that he was going to be a fantastic coach as well. And, and he brings in Norm Chow, and I, and I was a big fan of his as well. So it just from the coaching to the recruiting, it, it just made sense. But I got to be honest, you know, that first year they go six and six. In the beginning of the second year, they're three and two. I mean, I'd be lying if I said I knew for sure that they were going to be one of the top football teams in college football history, but they found a way to turn it around. And the, the end of that second year, I still think it's Pete's favorite team when that they Carson Palmer and Justin Fargus and Sultan McCullough and Malifa McKenzie. I mean, that, that was just a group that had been through so much under Paul Hackett. So for them to kind of have the uh, turnaround that they did before they left, and truly Palomalo as well. Uh, that was so fantastic to see. Yeah, it really, really was. But let's get back to you now. So, in discussing your amazing career path, obviously, uh, you have to talk about the fact that you overcame a few obstacles, to say the least, including battling cancer not only once but twice. Can you tell my listeners? about the day a doctor sits down with you and tells you at around the age of 21 that you have non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Yeah, I mean, that's uh, 2001. I was at USC. I was getting ready for, uh, you know, my first full year there because I was a transfer student my uh, first semester there. And uh, it didn't it didn't seem real. It didn't, it didn't, I, I kind of wanted them to <laughs> redo the test again, and, and it didn't seem real. You know, I, I had all the symptoms, and so I guess in their minds, they, they just had to do the uh, the test and the PET scan and all that just to make sure. But it's tough, you know, when you're 21 and you go through something like like that. And um, But everyone was really supportive in my family and at USC, and, and uh, that, was, that was great to be a part of that. And then um, just to fast forward, you know, the second time it happened was 05. I was living in New York, and it was the same symptoms. So it was sort of like a, a, a tough situation where you're thinking it could be that, but I really hope it's not that. And then it's confirmed that it is. And that's devastating in the sense that it's like you think that you're past it, and then you have to go through it all over again. And, um, and, um, that, you know, the second time is harder because it, it's sort of they have to do a, uh, you know, they, they have to do a stem cell transplant where it's like your stem cells and it's you're in the hospital for a month and you really can't really do anything productive. And <laughs> it's tough. It's it's definitely a tough thing. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it's something that I, I always try if I hear someone who's going through that at that age. Because, you know, when I went through it, I was 21 and 25. I mean, that's a really young age to go through something like that. And so... Whenever I hear of someone who's that age going through that, I always make it a point to reach out to them. Or if someone tells me that they know someone who's, who has it and they're in their 20s, I, I try to let them know that, you know, you can't make it through it. You know, you just have to think positively. And, uh, um, but yeah, it was, it was, for, it was, it was the, it was the toughest thing that I've had to do. And the fact that I've had to do it twice was just, Really, really hard. And Arash, the reality there was, I mean, you literally had to check out of places like Madison Square Garden, Yankee Stadium, because you're working for SI.com, and check into the USC Norris Comprehensive Cancer Center for a 30-day stay. So during that time, what did a good day consist of? Well, you know, the good days are the fact that your family's around you and that you're back home. 
you know, I mean, you're home, but it's like, you know, you're not really home. It's, it's the closest, uh, you know, and I can say it because, I mean, it's what closest I felt to being in prison because, like, you're stuck in the hospital room. Like, you can't leave that room. And so you really do appreciate the fact that, like, when people come to visit you, you kind of yearn for that drive home or that stop at uh, a sandwich place you like. I mean, you kind of take things for granted. And so, um, but a good day, obviously, is when people are going to come to see you. Uh, I was so fortunate to have so many of my friends and family come to visit me during that time period. But, um, yeah, it was just, it's it's still tough to um, drive past that hospital because you're, it brings back a lot of thoughts and memories. I mean, there's so many amazing people who work there that I'm so thankful for, but it's still, uh, it's still a tough place to go see. Wow, that's amazing. Arash, how did battling cancer change you the most as a person? Well, you appreciate life so much more, and, you know, you don't let the little things get you down. I think, like, one thing a lot of people always tell me is, you know, how positive I am or how happy I am. They, they basically say, why are you always <laughs> happy or smiling? And I feel because like I woke up this morning, and I know it's cliche to say that or whatever, but, I mean, you know, there was so many days where you're in the hospital bed where you're not quite sure where they take blood work and it didn't quite improve from the night before, and so... You know, I mean, that's real problems, right? I mean, like, that, that, that's like you might not survive. And so in the big scheme of things, when somebody breaks up with you or someone doesn't return your phone call or someone's rude to you or whatever small thing happens to you, going through what I went through puts that into perspective and, um, and just makes you appreciate life. And so, yeah, I mean, I'm definitely happier than a lot of people, but that really has a lot to do with the fact that, like, I'm not going to let something small you know, ruin my day. I start every morning by doing 10 push-ups next to my bed. Uh, and then I take an ice shower, no hot water involved, just an ice shower in the wow. morning and a prayer, thanking God for another day. Give me a rush. Markazi's morning routine. Well, I wish it was as um, inspirational as that. You know, I, mean, <laughs> I, I, I am thankful when I, when I wake up, um, I think that, that that's something that I definitely am just, all right, thank God for this. But uh, I definitely have turned into, and I wasn't always like this, a morning cup of coffee guy. I, I And I take it black because there's no cream or sugar or anything. I just, a, you know, cup of coffee, newspaper, um, you know. So, But I like your idea. I mean, I have worked in cardio into my day, but it's not first thing in the morning. Uh, but, uh, and I do like a slightly warmer shower. So you, uh, your routine is definitely one I, I don't think I could duplicate. Maybe the push-ups, but not the ice <laughs> And for the part of my audience that is not familiar with your unbelievable journey of weight loss, give us an update. So I'm 120 pounds down in 11 months. I mean, I've, I've plateaued a little bit. I mean, I, I was really dropping at the beginning, but I mean, I think that's, that's like most people, right, where you go from like not doing a single thing and like eating the worst possible foods to like actually working out. And so um, I'm in the midst of a whole 30 diet. Uh, me and my friend Christine Lakey are doing it together. I, I didn't want to do it by myself, but she was nice enough to want to do it with me. And so we are um, in the process of that. And uh and I think by the end of it, Roger, I will be down 130 pounds, and I will be in the best shape of my life since going into the hospital back in '05. And you know what happened in 2005? Um, 
I was a little under 200 when I checked into the hospital, and I was a little over 200 when I checked out. And I have not been below 200 um, since. And I think by the end of uh, this month, I will be below 200. And, um, you know, what, what happened at that time period was, and it was kind of understandable at the time, it's like you check in and you're just eating food to cope. And then when you check out, you're kind of still like eating food to cope. And then the next thing you know, like 205 turns into whatever, 255 turns into 300, which, you know, I began this process September 25th. I was 329. Um and I think by the end of the month, hopefully I'll be at 199. And so it's, it's, it takes time and it's consistency. And I really put it online to keep myself accountable. I, I never thought people would be like joining me on this journey. And that's always been the, the, the coolest part about this. And really the most um, humbling part is getting these daily notes from people saying like, my God, I just saw you and you look totally different. I'm going to begin my journey. Did you have any tips? Or people are like, I'm on day 16 or I'm on day 30. And I just think that, that, that that's so cool. Again, I put it out there to make myself accountable. And so I'm not a quitter. And the fact that I've kept it going for a year, that's still surprising. How does it feel? Me, I, yeah. <laughs> how does it feel for you personally to get those notes from other people and to know firsthand that you are affecting others and making a change in their life? That's pretty cool. No, I mean, and, and I tell them I've, I've never done anything this consistently, like in my life. Because even when I was in good shape, I mean, I was still in my twenties. Like I, again, if I if I keep this up, I'll be in the best shape since I was twenty five. So you know, it's a little bit easier, but. It makes me feel so good because I, I think people who are following me on social media knew what I did before. You know, I'd go to Philadelphia. I'm going to go get a Philly cheesesteak. I'm in Chicago. I'm going to get a deep dish. I'm in New York. I'm going to get a slice of pizza and a hot dog or whatever. And it's not like I would do this one time. I would do it on a daily basis. And so, um, you know, there, there was the World Series a couple of years ago where they had all these crazy food items, and I would basically try one per game. And it turns into like a joke, but then like the, the, the joke turns into reality when you can't, you know, sit properly in a in a seat like um had a game, or you can't get the seatbelt to fit when you're flying and and things like that. And so it's been it's 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 been great. It's been great. And I think when people see my journey and I've chronicled it from the beginning, they know that it's possible. There's 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 nothing gimmicky about this. I'm not hawking a a a, a pamphlet or a cookbook or anything. I'm basically saying, hey, move more and you eat less. And it's like four words, move more and eat less. And so I'm on the treadmill every day, 60 minutes, or on the elliptical. And I just try to stay under 1,500 calories. Obviously, you have cheat meals, cheat days. But on, the, on a regular basis, I'm not going crazy. Wow, what a journey for Arash Markazi. Hey, let me go back a little bit here. So after kicking cancer's ass, uh, you come back to join ESPN, where you covered some of the most interesting people involved in sports and entertainment. When you got there, how much pressure did you feel that, man, I left SI.com to come to the four-letter. I'm on a really, really big stage now. How much pressure did you feel to have to excel immediately? You know, the pressure came from, you know, I had never done TV or radio on a consistent basis. I mean, it was once in a blue moon. And um, and then at USC, I graduated during a time period where I just graduated with a print journalism degree. I think my students now, like, you have to take some type of TV 
and podcasts and like, you know, multi-platform course. So I, I was sort of in that last of that, you know, graduates who, I mean, the first time I'm doing TV, I'm on the four letter, I'm on sports letter. And so that's a little nerve wracking. Wow. So I, I had to get used to that. And, um, but uh, yeah, so there's there's a lot more pressure there, knowing that a lot more people are going to read my stories. Obviously, if I'm going to be on the on uh, like um, outside the lines or on Sports Center or something like that, like there's pressure involved there. So that was the hardest adjustment, knowing that okay, like I'm still doing the same stuff for the most part. Like I, I haven't changed the way I'm going to cover a story. But now if I do a big story, it'll be on the front page of the most read, like, sports website in the country, and I'm going to be perhaps maybe on the most popular TV show in the country. I mean, that that changes things a lot. Do you ever go back? Like, the first time I ever was on television, like, as a host, I filled in for Greg Kinnear on an old E! Entertainment show called Talk Soup. <laughs> and, man, I was terrible. I mean, I look back now and I think, how in the world do they have me back again after that performance? Do you ever go back and look at yourself on television the first couple of times and wonder, what in the hell was I doing? No. And if someone played it for me, I would turn it off. And <laughs> how bad I was. I mean, because, you know, I mean, it, I, I, I had no idea what I was doing. So I always tell like my students, like, I'm so happy that you guys are taking this class. Cause, and, and then if you go to like a small market, like good, you know, because I, I would rather you have to make that mistake there than like be in New York or Los Angeles. And, and uh, you know, listen, I love ESPN, but I, I, there was a time period there and I'm one of them. Like they put a lot of people on on the camera who had no idea what they were doing so we were learning on the job and we did the best that we could but um yeah i would never watch my first hit i have no idea what it was about but i know it was not good you did some really fun stuff at espn let me start with uh the whole jen sturger thing I mean, of course, Jen Sturger was noticed at the Florida State game before moving on to the Jets, and then, of course, the whole Brett Favre thing. But, I mean, how did that come about? What do your bosses come to you and say, hey, find that hot brunette from the Florida State game and go do an article? How did that all come about with you and Jen Sturger? So, uh, um, I had a campus uh, website. Well, they had a campus news, I mean, a campus magazine, but then it went to a, a campus website, and uh, that Florida State Miami game was such a big game at the time, and and um, and I don't know why Brent or why there was so much focus on this one girl, Jen Serger, but you know the 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 camera zoomed in on her, and Brent said something of the effect of whatever, like every you know red blooded you know man in America is now going to apply there, and yeah. and so it was going to be hard to find her, but I, I forgot how someone had said, oh I I, I know who she is. And so I was a little bit lazy, and me and Jen still joke about it to the state because she actually lives in Los Angeles now. Um, instead of wanting, they, they wanted me to write a story about her. I said, uh, and actually I, I talked to her, and she was really smart and hilarious. And I was like, you know what, how about you write it, and I'll tweak it if it needs to be. But, like, let's make it a, a first-person piece. The truth of the matter is I didn't want to write the story. And, but I, but, uh, but Jen was really good, too. And so... Um, so she wrote it. I mean, I think I read it and I, I, tweaked, I tweaked a few things and it turned into like a full-time job for her there. It was fantastic. And then a few years later, here's 
Arash Markazi from the San Fernando Valley somehow getting a little-known model at the time by the name of Kate Upton to, oh, do, yeah. to do the Dougie. They posted it on Twitter to a couple of million views. Take me through how you orchestrated that, my friend. So I worked at the VSI swimsuit um, issue. That was a fun job I had at the time. And so when Kate Upton and Damaris Lewis happened to be in Los Angeles, they were like, let's go to a game. And I said, okay. Like, so we went to a Clippers Oklahoma City Thunder game. And Kate was sitting with us. And she's like, I learned to do a dance in the last night. You're going to think it's hilarious. And I'm like, well, well, you have to, I have to see it. And she's like, well, you know, you have to play the song. And so, I mean, thank God the DJ, whoever he is, played the song. And like, teach me how to Dougie. And then she started to do the dance. And then I started to record it. Where I dropped the ball, Roger, is I didn't upload it to YouTube. I uploaded it to TwitVid, which is now dead. Um, someone, I'm sorry, guy who told, but someone said if I uploaded that to YouTube, I, I, I could have made some good money off of that. But <laughs> you know what? I was just, it was such a, such a hilarious, like, random occurrence. With so many things in my life have just been right place, right time, so random. Um, but anyway, she starts to do the dance, and the kind of addendum to that is I see her on the field at, at, at Dodger Stadium Game 7 after um, Houston beats Los Angeles, and she's like, oh, gosh, and I'm like, and I hadn't seen her in a while. I've seen her since then, but I hadn't seen her in a while. And we start talking and catching up, and then Justin Verlander comes by, and he wants to, like, take her from me, and she's like, wait, hold on, I want you to meet. Arash, and he's like, yeah, ha, ha, hi, you know, like, he wants to leave. <laughs> and, she, and she's like, no, 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 he shot me doing the Dougie. And his face totally changed, and he laughed. I mean, that was the first time he saw his wife was at that clip, um, you know, so that was pretty cool. Wait a minute, you're kind of like a matchmaker then. You're the one that hooked up Justin Verlander <laughs> and Kate Upton. Listen, I think he would have seen her in a in in some kind of a magazine at some point in his life, but her doing that dance was the first time he saw her. Maybe you should have been the guy hosting the dating show back <laughs> in the day. But, exactly, right? But how about this, though? You got Bill Buckner with 2,700 hits in his career, a batting title with the Cubs, of course, in 1980, but will always be remembered for booting that grounder in the 86 World Series. You, you remember, here comes Knight, and the Mets win it. And then you have Chris Webber, Rookie of the Year, five-time I'm all-star, but the only thing we'll remember is him calling that timeout when Michigan didn't have any, handing North Carolina the NCAA title. Here's Arash Markazi with all of these unbelievable uh, columns over the years, and the thing you get most associated with is Kate Upton doing the Dougie. I know, and I, and I, and I teased her about that, and uh, but you know what? I mean, it, what, it, what it did for her career was, was fantastic. And yeah. Going for me to tell, um, but it's hilarious, you know. And it's like I think that and like the story that I'm most famous for is the story that you really can't find online. But there's a screen grab of it of when I was in the Las Vegas with LeBron James. Oh, because, you know, it's like these like crazy moments in your life, I guess. Hey, so in January of 2019, you leave ESPN after nearly a decade. To join the L.A. Times, what was your biggest reason for the change? You know what? That was always, like, my dream job. And um, I grew up, I think I told you, as such a sportsman in Los Angeles. And I read the Los Angeles Times every morning. It was I was Malamud. It was Jim Murray. That, I mean, that was my uh, dream job. And so 
uh, when Patrick Sun-Hyung bought the paper last summer, uh, we had a conversation just very generally about, you know, the times and what they were doing. And, I mean, he really wanted to make the sports section, like the sports section um, of the country. You know, it wasn't just a local newspaper. Um, and he, he wanted to make it the number one sports section in the country. And so when I had the opportunity to come over to be a columnist for the Los Angeles Times, it just that, that, that meant so much to me. And I've become good friends with Jim Murray's uh, wife. I'm on the board of the Jim Murray Memorial Foundation. And she was the first person I called when I got the job, and she was so happy about it. And, um, yeah, I mean, listen, it was, it was such a great opportunity, and it's not that often in life you get a chance to get your dream job. So when I got that chance, I had to take it. So what journalists, other than Jim Murray, did you look up to most growing up in Southern California? a great question. I mean, I, I just think all the writers that I, I, I read as a kid, whether it was Jim Murray or Alan Alamut or Bill Plasky and uh, you know, Doug Krikorian, I, I, I read a lot, and the guys who covered the team, like Mark Stein, covered the sports, he went to Cal State Fullerton, uh, you know, Tim Brown, um, just, I mean, the, the list goes on and on. I mean, I, I, I bought both of the local papers, at least when I grew up in the Valley, it was a Daily News and the Los Angeles Times, and prior to that, I even remember the old Herald Examiner. So, you know, all those writers, uh, I, I grew up reading, and the fact that I get to write something, and I still get the paper, and I did it even before I worked at the Times, I get the paper um, every morning, and so the fact that I get to write something and get to go to, you know, the front door and pick up that paper in the morning, it, it just, it means a lot to me, and so... um yeah, I, I still have every, you know, again, I, I joined in January, but I still have every column that I've done, and it's beginning to be a little, little bit of a stack in my room, but I, it's, just, it's, I, I, it's still such a cool thing. When you get up in the morning, and you told us that now you're, you're a coffee guy in the morning, so when you <laughs> get up with your paper in the morning with your coffee, do you read your column? I do, you know, just because I, I want to make sure that, like, it's, read like I, you know, I mean, because sometimes like they tweak things in print that, uh, you know, just because there's not uh, enough space and I write long. <laughs> so sometimes we'll have to take things out of the print version, but I, I'll read the entire section, but I will also read mine just to make sure. And every now and again, I'll, I'll, I'll catch something or, or think of a, a line I should have put in or a line I should have taken out. But uh, yes, I will read the entire section, including my column. When you write your column, in the year 2019, who's always in the back of your mind while you're writing? Oh, that's a good... I mean, I wish it was that deep. It's, it's really not. I mean, there's no one in the back of my mind, but I'm so grateful to have so many um, good um, editors who are helping me, you know, because writing three times a week is a little bit new for me. Um and it has pushed me to do some really good stuff that I don't think I would have been able to do if I had not been. Um, I'll give you an example. Really, just today as we're recording, you know, I, I do a column uh, Tuesday, Thursday, Sunday. And my Thursday column, I wanted to go to the Sparks game on Tuesday, uh, mainly because Lisa Leslie won the Big Three championship. And I'd always thought she deserves this you. You know, I was like, listen, you look at what she's done, four-time gold medalist, 
WNBA champion, like MVP. She retired as like the league leader in points and rebounds. You go on and on and on. I said, why don't? Why doesn't she have a statue? It doesn't make sense. Now, I don't think if I didn't have a set column day, like maybe that's a column that I, I don't write. But I, I was looking for a topic for Thursday, and she had just won the championship game, and the Sparks had a game on Tuesday. So I went there and I and I talked to people at the Sparks, talked to people at Table Center. You know, and they're focused on like um, other things, but they're like, you know, that, that's not a bad idea. Like we, we kind of agree with that. And then, but by Wednesday afternoon, when I'm writing my column, they both had kind of agreed, like we're going to do this. We're going to meet up Friday, and uh, you know, obviously we don't have a date when it's going to unveil it, but this will happen. So, you know, listen, she deserves the statue more than um, anybody else, but. That that whole column came together because I, I kind of had to have a column on Thursday, and I'm thinking, like, well, what are some of the topics that I want to write about? And and so, again, to, to be able to do that in my city of Los Angeles, where I kind of um, have the ability to pick up a phone and be like, hey, Sparks, hey, Staples, I know, what about this? You know, I couldn't do that if I was a fan, so I have to be, like, the voice of the fan. Um, and to that point, like the column I did on um, Tuesday was on Sports talk radio, Joe McDonald, what he meant to me, local sports talk, what you're doing, how important that is. Like we are the not only the number two sports market, I believe it's the, the best sports market right now when you look at two teams in um, every league, they're all competitive. Compare our scene to the New York scene, it's not even close. When you compare the Rams and the Chargers and the Lakers and the Clippers and the Dodgers and the Lake it's we're we're the best sports town in America. So it is criminal if you don't have good local sports talk no i i couldn't agree with you more man it kind of drives me yeah sorry no but real quick this this is me speaking for the fans and so i i really and i take my role so seriously because i want to speak for them Man, it's like, you know, drives me nuts here in Southern California when I'm driving around in my car when I'm not doing my afternoon drive radio show. And, you know, Cody Bellinger had an amazing game the night before or Mike Trout did something truly amazing. And the sports shows I'm getting usually are talking about the Philadelphia Eagles secondary. Drives me nuts, Arash. It really, really does. Hey, so you told me it's not really that deep. There's no one in the back of your mind when you write one of your columns. Okay, how about this then when you write a column whose approval are you seeking the most Man, great questions you know what i like if i write a good story i know my mom will like it she's not a sports fan she's a little bit like your mom i think when me and my dad would talk about sports yeah I was like i have no idea what you're talking about <laughs> when you break through the sports and it's a good human interest story and my mom is not a sports fan but i'm her son so she reads what i write she reads what I write, and and, and so if um, if she likes it, I know I know I've done a good job because that means that if you're picking up the paper and you don't know anything about sports, that's a story that you're gonna like. And so she's someone that um, if she goes out of her way to say, hey, like I really enjoyed that story, that that means okay, it's like it wasn't like a nuts and bolts story. Like that was a a good story that if you're not a sports fan, you will you know you will appreciate that. For what age group do you write? Yeah, I guess my, I mean, I'm about to turn 40. I'm 39. So I, I mean, I, listen, I hope that if you're younger, you're going to read me. I have realized writing for the Los Angeles Times, and this is just the way it is, like a lot of those 
correspondence I get are from people who are, you know, 50, 60, 70. <laughs> so um, I do have to realize that. I've written about League of Legends and, like, uh, eSports and, like, the Overwatch League. I've got people saying, I have no idea what you're talking about. And I'm like, oh, shoot. Like, but I, I, it's, it's not that I can't write about that, but I have to realize that I have to explain what these things are and um, realize that the audience that I'm writing for, like, they're not used to these things. How has social media affected what you do the most? I think it's been so fantastic because it, it, it lets me know what what hits, um, you know, what what um, people want to talk about. And um, uh, I'm trying to think of a, a good example, but you know, I mean, there's 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 sometimes I'll tweet out something that I don't think is that big of a deal, but I'll tweet it out just because I think is a, 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 a of um, interest to me. And then I'll get so many responses that I'm like, I, I got to do a column off this, or um, or also if I have a column that is coming out and I tweet it out, and you know you retweet it, and like a ESPN retweets it or whatever, you know the the amount of reach that that column will get because of social media is huge, and so I I, I think it's been fantastic. So what's more of a priority right now for you guys over at the LA Times, digital media or print media? Digital, and it's not close. Like we, we're not done with print. I think Patrick said, like we're going to be the last one to print. I mean, if, if we have to be, we're going to be the last one to print the paper. But that being said, digital subscription is such a priority for us. And you know, and I've, I keep t- tweeting it out, and I, it kind of seems like a salesman, like I was taking a percentage of sales or something, but it's not the case. But you know, for less than ten dollars a year, not a month, a year, you can get a, a digital subscription of the Los Angeles Times, which includes. The Sunday print edition, which I still think is a fantastic thing to wake up to that Sunday morning cup of coffee and your newspaper. So we're really trying to push that. And um, hopefully, you know, we're not where we want to be or where we need to be in terms of subscribers. And, and our goal in these next couple of years is to be up there as we should be with The New York Times and The Washington Post. Arash Markazi from the L.A. Times. Okay. Truly appreciate the extra time today. But before you leave me, some quick hitters here. You ready? Yes. Favorite athlete growing up in Southern California? Magic Johnson. Ooh, you didn't even hesitate. What was it about Magic? I loved him. I mean, I I can't even begin to tell you. And I've told him this, you know, just, you know, in passing, um, just, uh, Showtime Lakers, you know, I mean, that's how I became such a sports fan. And the first time I went to the forum, like, I'll never forget, you know, just like the the bright yellow and the purple. And, um, you know, and my mom worked down the street from the forum. So every now and again, she would pick me up from school and take me to lunch at the forum club. Now, listen, it wasn't crazy for lunch. It was just like a regular restaurant, but it was such a thrill. And so I never take for granted every time I cover a Lakers game. Or even when I go to a concert at the Forum now, like what that place meant to me. How about the fact that Magic Johnson against Larry Bird, Lakers-Celtics, NBA Finals, yeah. Magic Johnson with that smile and that personality and the way he played the game, and it's like Larry Bird could have came to work in a hard hat, white guy from French Lick, Indiana. You couldn't have scripted that any better, Arash, and it saved the NBA, did it not? 
hundred percent. I mean, I, I can still just picture like what that meant for like the yellow and the green and like you know the, the purple and the white and just like the, those those colors. And you were one or the other. You were a Lakers fan, you were a Celtics fan, and just and how big those games were and you know this, this the significance of them and what they meant and you know those those two classic buildings. And at least we have the forum. Like the Boston Garden is no longer there. But I'm so happy with what they did with the forum and, and the fact they preserved it just because like that meant that place meant so much to me. That place was amazing. First autograph you ever got. Uh, Michael Cooper. I went to the Michael Cooper camp back in the day. Sadly, I don't think I have the, I don't even know where the autograph would be at this point. But Michael Cooper, again, Showtime Lakers fan. So I went to Magic Johnson's camp. I went to Michael Cooper's camp. And uh, at Michael Cooper's camp, I got his signature. First sports poster up on your wall. Magic Johnson, it was the one where uh, it measures how tall you are. Oh, yeah. Um, Andy Bernstein took the picture. Uh, by the way, like, um, I think um, Andy Bernstein took the picture of the majority of the posters I had in my room. Uh, I'll have to show you the uh, picture of me in, in my room, but it's all Lakers posters, and there was this uh, basketball shop in Sherman. It was called the Hoop Connection back in the day that I would go to, and they would have all the great new VHS tapes and all the new T-shirts and the caricature shirts and things like that. And so first poster was a Magic Johnson poster. First non-sports poster up on your wall. Mm, Michael J. Fox, probably. <laughs> Michael J. Fox, Back to the Future, loved Back to the Future. So had to be, had to be Michael J. Fox. The game you'll never, ever forget. Mm, I'm trying to think, like, what... Because like there's games that I've covered and there's games that I've seen on TV. Um, you know, the game that I'll always kind of like remember in terms of where I was and everything like that. I covered the Oklahoma Oklahoma Boise State Fiesta Bowl, that crazy. Oh yeah. You know, hook hook and ladder and the Statue of Liberty play. Like I was embedded with Boise State that entire week, and I was on the sideline behind the coach while he's calling his plays. Um, so that was always such a fun moment for me. But that year was a, an amazing kind of time period because I also covered the USC team when they played Texas and like the push push game. So, um, yeah, there was like a lot of fun moments in college football. But that that, that Fiesta Bowl still to this day, I'm like, did, did that even happen? That was crazy. Yeah, Ian Johnson proposing to his girlfriend. That was crazy. <laughs> You're right. That was absolutely nuts. All right, all time. Favorite sports announcer? Uh, Chick Hearn. But, you know, that's such a hard one when you live in Los Angeles. You know, Bob Miller's probably of the – when you look at Bob Miller, Vince Scully, Chick Hearn, right? That's sort of our um, holy grail. Um, you know, and Ralph Waller. I, I don't want to leave out Ralph. Of those four, I'm closest with Ralph and Bob. But, I mean, such a reverence for Vin and Chick just because, like, I grew up with those two guys and those two teams. Name the interview you will never forget. Um, Vin Scully. So I sat down with Vin Scully before a game. This was for the 20th anniversary, I think, of the Kirk Gibson home run. And so I had always wanted to chat with Vin, but there was no kind of, like, an easy way for that. And he's really hard to... um, you know, he doesn't do a lot of press. And so, I mean, that was one that I, I worked on for a year almost. And Steve Brenner, and I was on him about it. I said, listen, I, I just need some time with him. You know, and, and Vin knew what we were going to talk about. And he comes in with 
notes. And, and I was like, well, are those notes for the game? It's like, no, notes for this, for our conversation. Like, he knew I was going to talk to him about that season and about Kirk Gibson, and he came with these notes. But it was such a joy, and I had um, – and I had a photographer come in. I, I said, listen, I know you're busy, but at some point during this time and this time, I'm going to be in the press box talking to Ben. Can you snap a quick picture? And he did. And so I'm very grateful that I have a picture of that moment. Too. Where's that picture now? It's up on my refrigerator. I, I, I want to frame it at some point. I have a lot of random pictures on my refrigerator. So <laughs> like, even though it doesn't sound like that's a prominent place, it's, it really like is. I have a picture of like my parents up there, a picture of my brother up there. So it's 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 not that it's not significant. I, I need to frame it. I need to put it up somewhere more prominent than that, probably though. All right, we'll finish with this. Who taught you the most about sports? My dad, you know, and I think that's 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 the poignant that we begin with my dad and we finish with my dad because I think uh, you know, when I tell you he loves sports, I mean he loves everything about sports. He'll watch I mean he loves the WNBA. He loves hockey. He loves there's I mean like anything sports related. And so for a family like mine, like my dad's like five foot, my mom's like four nine, like I'm a five, six, seven, eight, nine, you know, like when you're as short as we are, like you don't really care like what the actual, you know, height is. And so for a family like ours we're not athletic, um, my dad loves sports so much and he raised me and my brother. Um, and my brother I think knows more about sports than I do. He's in so many fantasy leagues and knows the statistics and names and numbers of everybody. And so it's mainly my dad, you know. And so I, I cherish every time we, we can watch a game and certainly go to a game. I mean, he doesn't like to go to a game, but every now and again I'm able to drag him out of the house and we're able to go watch a game. He loves it. Wow, what a journey you have had, my friend. And I truly appreciate the conversation. Ladies and gentlemen, he's done it for <laughs> SI.com, ESPN. Now he's living his dream as a columnist for the LA Times. He's one of the best in the business and one of the classiest dudes you'll ever want to meet. Arash Markazi, truly appreciate it, man. Can't thank you enough and look forward to my next conversation. Thanks for working me in. Thanks, Roger. You're the best. Thank you so much. Arash Markazi from the LA Times here on the Sports Lodge podcast. We'll do it again soon, everybody. Don't forget, at the Sports Lodge on Twitter. And that'll do it for this edition of the Sports Lodge podcast. My name is Roger Lodge. We'll do it again soon. Thanks for listening to the Sports Lodge podcast on the Global Story Network. See ya! The Sports Lodge with Roger Lodge was brought to you by the Global Story Network.